What strengthens state capacity? We often conceive of state formation and capacity building as a unitary process. But actually, state capacity may strengthen in some domains, but not others. To learn more, I'm joined by Professor Anthony Pereira, MBE from King's College London. So can you give me an example of a state that is strong in some respects, but not others? Um, I'll give you an example which is maybe going way back in history. Yeah. Maybe it's not totally appropriate for the 21st century, but the, the Portuguese colonial state was a state that was very good at establishing trading relations with, with different people along the West African coast and the Indian Ocean, but it was terrible at actually maintaining territory. It didn't have much of an army. And so it claimed vast colonies in Africa and in, and in, and in India. Uh, but never actually established, you know, never actually really ran them or, or created a, a structure there. Um, it was much more of a sort of coastal power. And, and that carried on with the Brazilian state. For a long time, the, the Brazilian population, most of it, was along the Atlantic coast. And again, it claimed this vast territory in the interior, right the way, almost to the west coast of, uh, of South America. And, but nobody was there. You know, there were nobody there. The, the, the Amazon is still like that. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. There are a lot of people in the Amazon now. But um, so that's an example, I think, of a, of a state that was highly sophisticated in, in, in trading, mm -hmm. in commercial relations, in, in dealing with other people and other cultures, although the colonial element meant that there was often a lot of violence in yeah. those relationships and, and inequality. Um, but it was very bad at establishing... Um, order throughout the territory and securing territory. So the Portuguese in India is a great example of a colonial power that claimed this vast swath of territory and very quickly it lost out to the Dutch and the French and the English and by the end it only had Goa. It had this tiny little little piece of, of India uh, and that's because it didn't really have an army. Right, okay, so what about in the contemporary world? Are yeah. there parallels where we see states that have strong capacity in some sectors or some domains but not others? Yeah, so my example in this paper that I've just written was, uh, is, is the contemporary Brazilian state, which is very sophisticated at doing things uh, like social policy. So you look at Bolsa Familia, social mm -hmm. policy that was rolled out in the early 2000s, and they have a database of 23 million people mm -hmm. on it, mm -hmm. they, and, and with the household incomes, and they're able to put a... a, a give those people a card with, with cash on it. Um, it, it it's the, the database itself took years to develop. And that's a very sophisticated approach. Yeah. But if you go to you know some neighborhoods in Rio or some neighborhoods in Sao Paulo, um, it, they're being run by militias or they're being run by drug traffickers. And there is no, there is no presence of a state. So, so, and that's kind of an unusual combination of, of high, high sophistication at one level uh, you could look at, I mean, how the central bank uh, manages the currency, how it accumulates foreign reserves. Uh, or collects taxes. Collects taxes. It's quite, quite good at collecting taxes. You know, the stereotype of Latin America is that the state doesn't collect taxes. 35% of GDP is taxation in the Brazilian economy. So very high levels of sophistication, and yet basic things like... Um, a, a, a presence, some kind of state presence in mm. neighborhoods. And it's not just urban ones, they're, they're rural areas too where there really is no state. Um, and and uh, there's all kinds of um, contraband in terms of drugs and people and arms crossing frontiers and crossing areas that, where the state isn't able to do anything. Um, so there are these gaps, these big gaps. And I think a lot of states are like that actually, much more hybrid than we imagine. We tend to think of them all, as all or nothing. They're yeah. either highly capable or they're not. Yes, um, yes. And people talk in those sort of homogenous terms, like this state has low capacity or this state yeah. has high capacity, yeah. whereas really there's that heterogeneity within a state. Yeah. But let me 
try to understand this. Is it that the Brazilian state wants to be capable of controlling law and order? Is it that they really care about the homicides between poor, unemployed black men? Or is it that they just choose not to strengthen capacity about that because that's not a priority of the governing elite? Yeah, I think historically it's been that they haven't cared. Yeah. You know, those are issues of, uh, of minor importance to the elites. What they care about is threats right. to the central state. Yes. And we've seen that, that since the Vargas days, that was the biggest concern. And so you wanted to make sure, so in, in the Vargas time, the central government wanted to make sure that the state police forces were subordinate to and smaller than the army. And that was a big effort that they made in the 1930s because in the 1920s, states were cap capable of rebelling. Yes. And in fact, that's how the 1930 regime came to power. It was three states that rebelled against the central with their own forces and took over, took over power. And I think they wanted to make sure that that couldn't be done again. So it was very much a sort of inter-elite uh, Right, so as long as it's poor, unemployed black men only killing each other and not threatening state control and access to resources and p political control, yeah. then they might it's, let it continue. It's often a neglected issue. And it's, it's something up at the margins that bothers some people. There are suggestions for reform, but it doesn't necessarily get a critical mass of people saying, we have to fix this. But why might there be? I mean, I guess partly in Brazil, richer people can afford to buy into a gated security, gated yes. compounds. Yeah. But why might it not be a priority for the state? Like, like I guess in, in Britain, we often think of law and order as a basic priority. Yeah. Um, well, there, I mean, there's this tradition, I guess, of, of, of elitism, of people considering themselves to be different. Mm. from the people on the bottom of the social pyramid. I mean, I think that's changing because one of the things that happened in the 2000s was that a lot of people who had been very poor and very marginalized and not in the consumer economy all of a sudden started having cash and access to credit yes. and started buying cars and started getting homes. The and rise of so the middle class, yeah. Exactly. So, And we would probably call the class, what the Brazilians call class C and call the middle class, we would probably call the working class. Mm. It's a sort of formal sector mm. working class. Um, but, but that means that social space had to be shared to a much greater extent. For example, you, in the 80s when you went to the airport, it was pretty much only the upper middle class mm. who was flying on planes. Now uh, people of quite low incomes can't afford to fly. So people are sharing space and I think that's creating a sense that this is really something. These, these 63,000 murders that happened last year in Brazil. 63,000. Uh, 63, wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's more than died in Vietnam and the US side, or that's more wow. than... You know um, that this is really unacceptable, and people know that the majority so wait, of victims well, I, are. I will relate the two bits to me. How does the yeah. rise of the middle class make the high rate of the murders more unacceptable? Because because I think now because people are in the consumer economy and mm. they're going to the airports and they're going to the shopping malls and they're saying I may be class C, mm. so-called mm -hmm. class C, a class that was formerly uh, a small segment of the population mm. and not very uh, not very powerful in consumer mm. terms. That class C is now the majority, or was until recently, the majority of the population. Mm. And they're saying, I have rights as well. It, it's, it's almost a concomitant of the their, their purchasing power now that they're saying, you know, I, can't, I, I will not be disrespected in the shopping malls. I will not be disrespected in the airports. I have as much right to enjoy the, the, what I can buy with my money as anybody else. Uh, I don't need to defer to the traditional middle class. And I think that might be driving some of this indignation when you look at the murder rate. Mm. And yes, as you say, it's mostly people in very poor neighborhoods, mm. young mm. men between mm. the ages of 15, 25, yeah. non-whites. Um, but 
because of that middling, that sort of the, the growth of the middle, if you like, mm. and it becoming something of a more of a middle class society, although with the caveat, it's still got, you know, it's still a top 10 country for income inequality, yeah, so it's yeah. still unequal. But that could be creating pressures to do something about this. You know, that this I, I, I still don't understand because surely, even if people were poor, they might, yeah. if you have a multi party government, they still might push for that multi party government to do something about homicides. Yeah. Like, why would a slightly wealthier person be more concerned or pr pushing for more accountability on homicides than someone with less money? Surely they're equally likely to be. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't trying to. I hope I didn't. Oh, no, no, yeah, no, no. I hope I didn't say that the rich would be more concerned mm. about it than the poor. Um, I was just thinking that um, you've you've got more people with a voice. That right. With the more sense of entitlement. Yes, that with the and it wasn't really redistribution because the rich never lost out. They mm. never did less well. No, it was a win-win coalition. So it was a win-win yeah. coalition exactly. So, but the growth of the middle, the, the more people in the middle, the, as what you were talking about earlier, the the rise of the the minimum wage, yeah, the rise of a social a, a sort of floor mm. through social through through Bolsa Familia. Um, just I, I, I'm just guessing here yeah. I, that it may have given people more a little bit more confidence as citizens, a little bit more voice, um, because they were now in the consumer economy in a way that they hadn't been before. They yeah. could say, we, we've got to do something about this. You know, I guess it's just interesting when we think, we, we often think of the, the middle class will be the, the bastion of democracy, pushing for greater accountability. Yeah. But I wonder to what extent that middle class voice comes from financial resources or to what extent it comes th through changing expectations of governance. Change, yeah. you know, expecting more, you know, as yeah. the PT became slightly more responsive, slightly more socially inclusive, more participatory, yeah. more redistribution, etc. How that shifted people's expectations of what the government should do. And it was yeah. that shift in expectations rather than wealth or mm -hmm. consumer power that, uh, you know, just two different hypotheses. Yeah, you could yeah. be right. And, that, and there has been that shift. I think we saw it in the protests of 2013. Right, exactly. Because yeah. people demanded more of their government. And if, and, that, yeah. if the cutbacks had happened in the 1970s, we wouldn't have seen that yeah. same reaction. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is a lot, you know, way back, I mean, go back to modernization theory, there's been an assumption that the growth of the middle class means the growth of commitment to liberal democracy and the growth of a consensus mm. around liberal democracy and, and um, you know, the, the, the market economy. But actually in Brazil, I think what you've got is this really interesting divisions within mm. the middle. So some people say, you know, some people are fully on board with the social programs. Yes and investment in public goods like education and health and public transportation public security i think there is a segment of the middle though as that has sort of followed the upper middle class and said you know what i want i don't want to pay as much in tax yeah i'd rather pay less tax let me deal with mm. educating my kids mm. buying private health, mm. health insurance driving my own car and dealing with my own security issues i don't want to pay more tax to this government mm. and that the priority should be lowering the tax rate which is sort of the message of, of Bolsonaro yeah. in this presidential race. And it's not just the already well-off, I think, who who buy that message. There, there are a lot of people in the so-called Class C, I think, who, who say, you know what, that's, that's a good strategy for me as well. And that's mediated that. by these huge corruption scandals. And I think we know that, I think there's plenty of evidence to show that people are more willing to pay taxes when they perceive the state as competent yeah. like we're more willing to exactly. give money if we think they're going to do something useful with it yeah when we think they're just pilfering the money for themselves right. as was highlighted by these horrific corruption scandals right. which you know everyone seems involved in somewhere or another it's, it's a great reason for not <laughs> yeah, to pay. Like, 
like I wouldn't want to pay tax either, <laughs> That's right? right? Get safe enough. Yeah, 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 absolutely. There's a there's a social scientist in Sweden called Boo Rothstein, and he talks about the social trap. You know, this idea that no one else is paying in, so why should you? And yeah. look where the if the few people who do pay in see that the money goes. You know, so he he talked about. Uh, giving a talk in Moscow and mm. saying that uh, in Sweden the tax compliance rate was something like 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Russians couldn't believe it. And they said, that's got to be wrong. <laughs> Why would people do that? And he said, they trust, basically they, yeah, trust, yeah, yeah. they trust the system. It's perceptions yeah. of a responsive, capable state, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, okay, so to what extent do you think some of this uh, disregard for public security, even if it's changing at the moment, mm. to what extent do you think it has historical roots? Well, yeah, because, you know, Brazil was the largest slave population in the world in the mm. 19th century. And, and so the police, the original uh, purpose of the police in the cities was to, was to extend the slaveholders' control, physical control over slaves, mm. in the cities. Mm. So they were free to physically uh, coerce uh, non-free part of the population. And until what, until what year was slavery legal So it was abolished in 1888. It was the latest, uh, wow. Cuba abolished in 1886, mm. Brazil was the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery, so, uh, and it didn't do it with any sort of, it's a bit like the states, it didn't mm. do it with any land reform or any mm. yeah. concession sure. right. to the slaves, mm. it, and it was done, they, they, they were able to do it because of European immigration, and the slaveholders realized, as the coffee planters in Sao Paulo realized they could replace slaves with uh, basically indentured servants from yeah. Italy and Spain yeah, yeah. and Japan. So um, it wasn't a progressive abolition, really, uh, and so and so those, a lot of those people immigrated to um, the cities yes. in the sixties and seventies. And, and Brazil has fantastically high urban population, like over seventy-five percent. Yes, yeah. it's an urban country now. Yeah. But a lot of those new settlements around the you know the traditional air, uh, city centers have, uh, are these are these favela populations, and the policing has been historically very. Um, I wouldn't say militarized is probably not the right word, but quite um, coercive. Yeah. So you know, gun. Sometimes police go in with their guns drawn. And we saw that with the preparation for the Olympics, how the police just went into the favelas. I mean, they're really yeah. just, what was it called? Operation Damite. I forgot the name. Um, yeah. At the time but it was very aggressive and very aggressive. That's very very militarized. So you, and you saw yeah. them all with huge guns and going in and right. Couldn't be more different from the Bobby on the beat approach. No, okay. right. You know, it's not two guys walking in unarmed and chatting <laughs> to everybody. Yeah. It's you know, it's an armored personnel carrier. It's people out with their weapons drawn, and it's an it's an incursion. You know, it's urban urban guerrilla warfare in a way. And I've also seen um, from social survey data in Brazil how there's even widespread acceptance of police brutality. Yes. Like I think some services like it. Thirty six percent of people say that it's okay for the police person to tr you know treat yeah. someone aggressively or violently or even to shoot yeah. a suspect. You yeah. know, you sort of. A legitimization of extrajudicial killings. That's that's there. In fact, there's a there's a survey that was included in the last uh, Brazilian Forum for Public Security, mm. and they found I think it was 51 percent said that bandido bom e bandido morto, or a, a good a good bandit is a dead bandit, um, which is you know pretty pretty stark. Yeah, not I mean, the presumption of innocence and till rigorous trial, etc., etc. It's summary execution. In fact, their data showed that over 5,000 people were killed last year by the police. So, and that's a big, that's about 8% of that 63,000 figure that I was giving you. So, and it's implausible given the number of police casualties and deaths that those were all shootouts on an equal basis right. between an armed criminal and an armed policeman. Uh, the, a lot of those were executions, mm. and and 
that is probably an undercount because the, the, the police uh, off-duty will often form death squads and kill people in, in ways that don't get registered. So relate squads. this back to me to the history of slave owning. How does this contemporary acceptance of police brutality relate, relate to the history? Well, well, I think, as I said, the police, the original police forces mm -hmm. in Brazil, one of, their, one of their tasks was to extend the power of the slave owners to the cities and, and control slave populations. But I think um, that kind of acceptance of physical coercion yeah. as a way to control people. Mm. Um, you know, abolition happened and slavery mm. ended, mm. but that view of uh, the underclass, if you like, or the, the urban poor, the marginal poor, a as being a, a group of people that could be tortured, that could be coerced, mm. I think that didn't really give away. So pe people talk about the military regime as being exceptional in that it tortured um, middle-class members of the left. Mm, yes. But that was its innovation, not torture itself. No. Torture had been going on for so decades. So I guess you know? one thing that's been continuous, even if slavery ended, is the permanence of the racist stereotypes. Yeah. And as long as we perceive some, as long as the yeah. white governing elites perceived black men as the other, then we could yeah. sort of feel that we could, people might feel that they can do whatever they like because right. violence towards the other is justified, they don't see them as the same. Yeah. And as long as black men from the favelas predominating, you know, particular in low economic jobs, yeah. as long as they're not seen, and as long as they're not in socially valued domains, as long as they're not seen as leaders, then those stereotypes persist, right? Yeah. The stereotypes are reinforced by labor markets, by politics, yeah. Yeah. So if those stereotypes are di aren't dislodged and the violence is contingent upon the stereotypes which justify them... Yeah. I think there's been an attempt to change that somewhat. In mm. the 2000s, for example, there was, a, there was a law whereby the state schools had to teach kids in schools about Africa and about uh, Afro-Brazilian Afro culture mm, yeah. uh, in a positive way, yeah. which traditionally hadn't been taught in a positive way. So that, that could change perceptions. It's, al it's also somewhat paradoxical uh, that the police are actually a means of social mobility for a lot of non-white non people. Oh, right, okay. So if you go, n n uh, not across the board, but if you go, I remember when I was in Pernambuco about 10 years ago, the mm. commander of the military police was a black guy from a, from a favela. Mm. So, so it's not necessarily like some countries in, in Europe or the United yeah, States yeah. where the police forces are overwhelmingly white and the populations they're dealing with are black. There's actually a mixture. Uh, so racism isn't the driving force of the police brutality. Well, unfortunately, I think these racial stereotypes actually can be adopted by the police themselves, right, whether course, they're white yeah. or not. Which are true for all things, right? Yeah. I mean, all stereotypes, can, you know, women yeah. can be exactly. sexist. Women, exactly. So yeah. this can be internalized yes. for policemen, whether they're, whether they're mm. white or non-white or, or mixed or, mm. or whatever. So, so I do think that that perception that the person of color is more dangerous, is more likely to be marginal, is, is very ingrained. Although just the presumption of criminality among people from a specific area. Yes. And like, yeah. we see the same thing in sort of, in Paris, in, in the banlieue, in yeah. you know, assuming sort of sense of yeah. marginality and criminality among right. the police. Right? Here there might be neighborhoods yeah, you know, yeah, that are, yeah. are discriminated against. But okay, wait, so how, why... Why do you think that we see path dependence with this violence? Why hasn't it been interrupted? Why? I mean, I know, yeah. I, I understand that there's, a, so with the statistics about violence in Brazil, I know that there's been more violence in democratic Brazil than under yeah. the authoritarianism. By, by like tenfold, right? Yeah, I, I'm very hesitant about path dependent arguments that draw a straight line between slavery and today. Yeah, because we've yeah. seen so much variation. Like, exactly. why does... 
violence peak under a yeah. multi-party context. I mean, I yeah. would expect in a multi-party context, you drop more, you know, so yeah. as a rational choice theorist, you yeah. need to anticipate more accountability, more people able to vote, more people able yeah. to vote for the guy they woman they like. To me, it's one of the hu big disappointments of Brazilian democracy because mm. one of, of the, all democracies, maybe <laughs> maybe all democracies. Although, because what you learn is that democracy it should provide uh, public safety to yeah. some extent because people want it, they can express their d demand for right. that. The party system will channel those demands mm. and you know we have books like Steven Pinker's book about the gradual decline of violence and yet what Brazilians have experienced is that since the early 80s when the military regime was phasing out the murder rate is tripled yes you know so th things have gotten more dangerous and more violent at the same time that democracy has been yes yeah, so it's for that reason that I'm yeah. skeptical of the sort of slavery historic roots because yeah. it doesn't explain the variation yeah. over the past 40 years it, exactly so I think urbanization is one part of the right. thing that you'd have to add because in the in the countryside pe the, the social relations of domination were, were quite strong you know so people a lot of the people worked on as tenant farmers or as rural workers on plantations and that so those social relations of control were there the, the landowner could be the godparent of the of the rural workers children for example and and urbanization changed that because people came to the cities and were freed from those relations. But there are plenty of cities where we don't see such widespread violence. Like in India, maybe. I don't yeah, know, or, yeah, 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 yeah. Or a different kind of violence, at least. Yeah, you know. yeah. But why? What is case? Okay, so, what are the main causes of contemporary violence? Like, yeah. Never mind why the state doesn't address it. What would be the main causes of contemporary violence in Brazil? Okay, this is disputed somewhat by criminologists, but mm. most of what I've read suggests that part of it, a good part of it, is organized crime. Yes. And it's it's turf battles over the right to sell drugs, drugs in yeah. neighborhoods or and control the traffic to places like here. And did that did those turf battles exist during the dictatorship or not? That's a great question and it's something that I haven't been able to answer because the data on ordinary crime in the during the dictatorship is really patchy and very limited and I haven't found very much on it. And we know for example that there were death squads that eliminated criminal suspects as well as um, the repression against the armed left we don't know much about those death squads. Mm. It's it's really there's a book by R. S. Rose and he tries to piece it together from newspaper accounts and he suggests that there was a lot of um, these these death squads killing criminal suspects in the sixties and seventies, but it's it's really patchy. Mm. So uh, I mean I think ha at least you know there's a good chunk of it that's, that's drug trafficking related, that's organized crime related. There's there's quite a bit of economic violence as well though. Um, you know, and just to be clear, going back to yeah. the drug trafficking, yeah. that's selling drugs to Brazilians. It's nothing yes. to do with uh, the drugs trade or the well, illegal war on drugs in America. It's local drug selling. It's both. Okay. It's both. The, tra the traffickers want to sell in places like Rio and Sao Paulo, where there's a lot of demand. It's a very big market for cocaine, for example. Yeah. Um, but they also want to control the routes out. So the Port of Santos, for example, is a place where um, you can pay somebody in the port to put drugs in a, in a, in a container. And then have someone here to, to get right, it. So okay. it's, it's and both of those are associated with organised crime uh, with yeah. and deaths. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So fighting over turfs. Um, Graham Willis at Cambridge has. Who I think is the greatest person in the world. It, well, you, his book is fantastic, yeah. and he shows in the book that the PCC, one of these big organised crime groups, has a very uh, bureaucratic, efficient system of punishing people. Mm. And one of the one of their punishments is is execution, is mm. death. And they will instruct somebody who to, to, to bump somebody off, and they have to do it, otherwise they'll be eliminated themselves. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, a very corporate mafia structure. But some of it's anomic as well. People getting in fights on a Saturday night. 
drinking, mm. having access to a gun, and deciding to shoot somebody. Um, okay, so here's a question. I guess apart from what, so one of the reasons why, why the state maybe doesn't tackle organized crime, uh, yeah. doesn't tackle violence, yeah. is partly because there will be people on the inside benefiting from and participating in organized crime. Well, that yeah, that's one. I'm sure you also see in Mexico and places like that. It's one of the unspoken you know, uh, assumptions that we, that those of us looking at this problem make is that um, although the rhetoric is the state is fighting organized crime, mm. what we know is that the or organized crime and the state are interconnected. Mm. And we saw that in the PCC uprising in 2006, where the PCC um, knew exactly who to target. They had the address, the, the, the names and addresses of people who worked in the prison system and, and military police that they, that they went to kill. So, so, and that information comes from the inside. And so, so. that's one example why, why, where a state might purposefully limit its own capacity yes. because it doesn't want to address, you know, if you've got people, if you've got politicians, if you've got senior bureaucrats, civil servants yeah. who benefit from organized crime, yes. they may not strengthen state capacity to reduce then, organized Then crime. you turn a blind eye. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and I've changed my view too of what the police killings, how to, how to characterize those because mm. um, I used to think, well, that's a, that's a failure of capacity. But mm. in a way, it's a, it's a perverse form of capacity. Right. I mean, you have to organize uh, police units to do that um, or, and you at least have to um, permit it. You don't necessarily have to, have to order it. Um, but the fact that that's taking place, I think, is a kind of capacity. It's it's a kind of um, uh, it's an it's an intimidation. You know, it's a tool of intimidation. Yeah. It's a it's a weapon against um, the threat of of enemy or disorder. Um, but it's it's clearly outside the rule of law, and and it's a problem from that perspective. So I guess we could call this a kind of regulatory capture. Uh -huh. in the sense that it's vested interest. And we see that in other industries across the world. So yeah. I often refer to the case of Bangladesh, where you have lots of manufacturers who also are politicians, yeah. Yeah. and they might purposefully limit regulation in the they garment industry yeah. or permit labor repression yeah. because they own factories and want to keep wages low and cost yeah, regulation. So good, it's very similar. It's a good guess. example. And what we could throw into the mix, too, is the fact that private security is a huge business in Brazil. Right. There are more private security people than there are uh, police. And a lot of people in public security have uh, interests in companies that provide private security. So in a way, it's a conflict of interest for them mm. to completely solve the public security problems because their business drives up. And I guess another reason to think that it might not be entirely racism is if we draw parallels with South Africa, yeah. right, where you've got a black, you know, ANC, yeah. Yeah. which also permits huge, huge violence. I mean, I don't know about the rates, how they compare with Brazil and, think, and South Africa. Yeah, I think South Africa is one of those few countries that's more violent per capita than, than, right. than the... Right. Uh, I, I guess it would be interesting to try to understand the similarities because, likewise, yeah. the South African state has delivers a number of cash transfer programs and mm -hmm. pension programs, yeah. etc. So yeah. it similarly has that sort of technocratic capacity to register and identify people, right. yet does not seem interested, willing, capable to... Yeah, uh, reduce you know carjackings or all sorts of. It's funny you bring crimes. up South Africa because some critics of Brazilian society use apartheid as a as a sort of shorthand for the social inequalities, um, but it is complicated. And as yeah. you say, in, in South Africa you have the ANC. The ANC has been there since 1994. Yes, yeah. and in Brazil you certainly get. Um, uh, you know, the representation in Congress of non-white people is limited. It's very low compared to the general population. Yes. Um, but I would expect it to increase yeah. w with the recent social changes. 
But interestingly in Brazil, we do now, as we were saying earlier, see this rising demand for public security. Like one of the Bolsonaro's so, yeah. pushes is law and order. Yeah. Getting that, getting that tackled. I mean, I yeah. don't know why people in particular think Bolsonaro might be the person to do that, given well, he, his track record. He uses like, his would... fingers to make a gun. So. Yeah, right, like, I don't, I don't look at him and think, wow, I'm going to be safe, I'm going to be totally safe. Well, it's funny you say that, because his, his, in his platform, he says that the rise in homicides coincides with the Sao Paulo Forum. Which was a which is a group of left parties that met in Sao Paulo starting in the early 1990s. PT organized it, and you know that's not really. It's a incredible. weird link, right? Yes, it's a, not really a very credible. <laughs> but do people buy that? Like, I just find that so incredulous. The idea that a left wing person. <sighs> I don't think so. I don't. Th but they do like. I think they like the fact that he was in the army, and then he's talking about putting the army on the streets. Um, and, and looking at social surveys, there is relatively high support, yes. relatively high support for the idea of the military. Like, that's not yes. a totally, it, yeah. like, whereas that might appall you and I, yeah. that's not... If you look at surveys, usually the Catholic Church and the military come out... Yeah, pretty good, yeah. And parties and Congress right down the bottom. Yeah, which um, is not unreasonable, given we were saying earlier that the death rate was lower under the military. <laughs> like, you got to be safer. And I think there's a perception that the corruption was lower as well. Right. Um... It's hard to know that because the press sure. wasn't that free in the Sure, in sure. The and corruption is hard to keep track of. Yeah, and we knew we know there was some. Um, but I think I'm not sure the army the, the the military commanders want to be front and center on the public security mm. front because mm. you know that exposes their troops to all kinds of temptations mm. to turn a blind eye to trafficking, to accept bribes. Um, yeah, they've done it as an exceptional measure in Rio, but that's gonna end in, in December. So would they really want to have the main role I think they've resisted it for a long time and I think they would resist it again under if Bolsonaro is president they would say look that's not our job our, you know we can we can help but we have police forces in the states that are supposed to be the you know the main because I would see it as unlikely that per that uh, Bolsonaro would be able to reduce homicides like I don't know what he would do I don't I, I don't see from his neoliberal policies how any of that would tackle some of the underlying drivers of homicides you know in terms yeah. of the organized crime or yeah. in terms of economic deprivation yeah. if anything neoliberal policies would exacerbate economic deprivation as it did over the 80s and 90s yeah. and fuel you know further desperation i agree with you. i don't i don't see it and there, there are very limited controls that the federal government has i mean he's talked about liberalizing access to weapons yeah. so more people with guns classic safety uh, move yeah which I don't, i'm not sure that's going to pay off he's talked about being less lenient and locking more people up well brazil already has the third largest prison population in the world has over 700,000 yeah. prisoners and 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 we know that organized crime is is running its operations from a lot of those prisons. As we how know from Greg Daniel Willison, his yeah, brilliant uh, Grant, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So how so how would that help? Incarcerating more people. Yeah. Uh, people are blaming hyperincarceration for the the rise. Right, because it's this institutionalizing these ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is, you, when you look at his p platform, you think he, maybe he hasn't thought about this very much. He's you know he's sensitive to the fears that people have. Mm, yes, fair enough. absolutely. But is there a package of coherent policy solutions? I don't see them. Where have we seen this idea of a leader who taps into people's concerns but does not deliver? <laughs> right. Anyway, I will stop it there. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks,